Welcome to Orders Beyond Borders, an audio interview series as part of the Berlin Social Science Center, Bitsy B's new blog. In this series, we bring you insights from leading scholars and emerging researchers in the field of international relations and global politics. This is a project by the International Politics and Law Department of the Berlin Social Science Center, run by the unit's global governance, governance for global health and global humanitarian medicine. Hi. Welcome to our Others Beyond Borders podcast with Ingen von Borsiskowski. She is an assistant professor of political science at Florida State University, Tallahassee. She researches on international organizations, domestic politics of international relations, and election violence. She is on her second research visit to the VTB. Uh, Ingen, it's a pleasure talking to you today. <laughs> um, you've been... You're an old face at the Vit to be. Uh, <laughs> Not sure that's a compliment. <laughs> it's it's okay. a compliment. Like, right. <laughs> so uh, tell us, like, how, when did you first get here and what are you working on at the, at the moment? Ah, so like a long time back, yeah. I was at the Vit to be as like a visiting, or sorry, as a research assistant uh, for a different group. And I was here for like three years or so over okay. time, 2005, 2008. And I came back. Uh, after receiving my PhD to the VTB two years ago, and I was working on a book manuscript, uh, which is now finally getting published next year, so that's quite exciting. And it was on international organizations and how democracy assistance from IOs, international organizations, can influence election violence. Yeah. And this time I came back this summer to again join the Global Governance Group because it very nicely aligns with my research interests on yeah. IOs. And now we're working on, um, this is a co-author project with Phyllis Davulis at Pepperdine in LA. We're working on IO exit. So when states uh, leave international organizations. Okay, interesting. Which is why I said you're an old phase <laughs> yeah, what you do is very much in line with what's done here. So I think they need you. <laughs> it's, nice. a, it's a compliment. <laughs> so now uh, you're working on IO Exit. And we had the pleasure of listening to uh, your presentation uh, on the paper yesterday. And you talk about uh, suspension and withdrawal. Mm -hmm. uh, give us like a, a crash course on what these terms mean. Okay. Yeah. So both of them essentially refer to when states leave IOs, okay. but they can leave IOs in different ways. By IOs, I always mean international organizations. And so um, suspension is essentially when, when an international organization um, suspends the membership of a state. So it ends membership of the government of the state in question. And this is a move by the international organization. Okay. So the state does not necessarily agree to this. It just gets kicked out. That's suspension of yeah. membership. And oftentimes this is tied to certain changes in behavior or in policies of the state. And once the state actually changes those policies and behaviors, there's a uh, prospect of potentially getting back into the organization. That's suspension. Withdrawal is a unilateral move by the state to leave an international organization. And so that's very different in terms of, you know, the, the, the willingness to leave starts from the state and not from the IO itself. Yeah. And it's surprising that, uh, you know, we've studied why states join the international organizations, but... We haven't really, there is nothing out there on withdrawal and suspension. Why do you think it's important to have such debates and research at this time? So um, 
Yes and no, I guess. So there is, it's not like there's nothing out there okay. on withdrawals and suspensions. So there are definitely some case studies, particularly in the EU politics, EU politics literature on like disintegration and things. So it's not like it's a clean slate that nobody knows what's going on. There's yeah. some case studies, you know, when to look into when the Mercosur suspended Venezuela or like some of the African countries, there's definitely people who have written on this. Mm -hmm. But um, so far, many of these are sort of case studies or like individual accounts and they don't really look at broader patterns over time and over space. And so that's what we're trying to do okay. here. So uh, again, Professor Felicity Vabilis at Pepperdine had collected these data of, you know, since uh, 1945 across all states in the world and across all international organizations in when this happens to kind of look at more of the broader patterns rather than just getting inference from individual cases when yeah. it happens here or there. And I think this is really important to get your question yeah. uh, of uh, looking at this now because essentially for the withdrawal side, there have been some big cases recently uh, where, you know, Brexit is now a famous yeah. in the news and we see it almost every day in the news media. Uh, similarly, uh, with the new U.S. administration, uh, the withdrawal from UNESCO, uh, there's talks about leaving NAFTA, about leaving NATO, etc. So those are things uh, that are frequently in the media. Yeah. And in recent times for these particular cases, um, current observers have often tied this to nationalism and sort of a rise and, you know, more respect for sovereignty and we don't want to be bound by those organizations anymore. And I think nationalism can explain some of these recent cases fairly well where it's invoked. But then the question is, does this also help us understand the older set of cases? So yeah. in the data set uh, for my co-author, um, there are actually more than 220 cases of withdrawals from international organizations since 1945. And so that's a lot, a lot of cases, right? Yeah. The question is, do nationalism arguments also hold there? And we find that there's sort of limited explanatory power over time and over space. So these new cases might be quite different from what we've seen in the past. And why do you think states withdraw from what's what what has been your findings so far? Ah, okay. So yeah. um, so we're still a little bit in the process of. Um, pushing this research forward. And yesterday, the presentation of the VCP, of course, was great help and sort of further refining what's going on. Um, so the, the common insight that we have is essentially that A, the recent cases seem to be quite different from the cases in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, what we find for the cases in the past, so this is 1945 through 2014, is that one thing that sort of seems to emerge is that states withdraw when they don't have as many common or shared interests anymore with the other states in the organization. Okay. And we see this in... Uh, number of different ways. So one thing is that when states' preferences start to diverge from other member states, and here's a one example um, that we could give is that several states have withdrawn from the non-aligned movement yeah. uh, during the Cold War, so including Myanmar and Argentina, and as their preferences diverged more from the aims and missions of the NAM, of the non-aligned movement, yeah. they essentially withdraw. A different way in which this sort of surfaces is that uh, we tend to see more withdrawals from international organizations that are not a focused group of highly advanced democracies. So okay. when uh, state preferences in terms of um, divergence in political regime types are more diverse, when these interests not align, then states are more likely to withdraw from those types of organizations. And then maybe a last one in terms of common interests is that um, something that we term contagion. So when a state or an important lead state in the organization or a founding member of the organization leaves the organization, there can almost be like a domino effect yeah. of other states leaving later as well. So. Okay, interesting. And what uh, theories are you building on? And mm. it's there's something new coming out of this, do you think, so far that you have? 
Yes. So, okay. um, so theories is, I think, an interesting question because we don't have like clear, proper theories of IO withdrawal yet. Like as I mentioned, there's a few um, current observers who credit this to or who blame uh, nationalism for this, but I'm yeah. not sure we have like theories as we conventionally would apply the term in the. Um, in the piece that I uh, have co-authored here, we're essentially drawing on two sets of um, th yeah, theoretical arguments, I guess. So one is uh, what we term functionalism, and this is very strong in research on international organizations. So yeah. states join international organizations because they want to cooperate or coordinate on some sort of issue. And so here then the uh, argument would be that once organizations do not fulfill these promises anymore don't yeah. actually deliver the goods don't fulfill their function anymore don't perform as well anymore states are more likely to withdraw from international organizations that's the first yeah uh, the other two uh, that we sort of draw on in terms of getting empirical or observable implications for expanding withdrawal is uh, the second one is domestic politics so it's the idea that what happens within the nation state has implications for a state's foreign policy including withdrawing from international organizations and so which party is in power whether there was a recent uh, change in the government if the government is a sort of nationalist right which is some of the current arguments yeah um how democratic the country is all can influence international collaboration broadly and then specifically um, withdrawal from an international organization. Okay. And the last one is uh, international relations arguments or theories. So here there's lots of arguments about state power, changes in state power and state preferences, which is what we definitely see coming through uh, in the data. So um, when state preferences start to diverge from the organization, when there's big shifts of power relative to other member states, that then um, states tend to withdraw. Yeah. From them. Okay. And how do you build on all this uh, aspect, strands of arguments that you present? So we're trying to test some of these arguments, right, particularly with functionalism and domestic and IR politics, because mm -hmm. these are all sort of linked to when do states enter organization? Like there's a huge literature on when states join organizations, as you said at the outset, right? But there's very little on when they leave. Yeah. So we're trying to build on them to see if we can essentially use the insights that previous scholarship has provided to also explain our withdrawal. Okay. And bringing it down to, you know, our reality, Brexit and Trump, <laughs> how does this like help us understand what is going on? So I think in a few ways. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good question in the sense that what are the effects yeah. of withdrawal? I'm, I'm not sure we really have a good answer to this at the moment. This is sort of still research in progress. And mm -hmm. one thing that I think we want to stress is before we really understand all the different reasons and conditions under which states withdraw, yeah. we can't really assess the effects, right? You need to know why it happens in order to know uh, some of the effects that are going on. Um, that said, I think some of the effects of withdrawal that we have sort of talked about in the past is implications for a state's reputation and implications for the reputation of the international organization. Mm -hmm. And so states might actually suffer some reputational consequences and potentially economic consequences when they withdraw, because if investors take a state's withdrawal as a signal that the state might not actually honor its commitments in the future with other international agreements or other international organizations as well, then that sort of casts doubt on the state's um, yeah, credibility to honor commitments and its reputation for international collaboration. Um, this uh, withdrawal, of course, at least sometimes when we look at the U.S. administration, maybe in the Trump uh, and Brexit cases, 
there's a question of whether this potentially can help state leaders as well, right? If it's not just costly, but yeah. can actually play quite to the benefit of states and leaders. And so I guess here I think it's important to really look across time and across cases yeah. and not just make this argument based on a few things that we currently see. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the last sort of um, consequence that we have talked about uh, is just costs in terms of international cooperation, right? So presumably the states joined the organization in the first place to achieve some sort of coordination or collaboration goal. And so given that they're out now, given that they leave, they might be potentially worse off with respect to coordination or collaboration. Yeah. Um, so I think all of this is sort of to say that we think of the cost of withdrawal depending both on the type of organization mm -hmm. that the country leaves and why the country leaves the organization. Some organizations like leaving the world tourism organization might not be as consequential, right? Yeah. Because they might not do as much for the country to begin with. But if you leave the World Trade Organization, if you leave NAFTA, if you leave NATO, that might have much larger implications for your uh, country. Okay. So let's see. Let's see if the U.S. leaving NAFTA, for instance, may have a domino effect, effect later <laughs> and have on, other states leave as well. But we've, we've spoken a lot on withdrawal. And I'd like to know how far your research has gone on the case of suspension. Mm -hmm. What do you... What are your findings so far and how do you study it? How do we study it? Yeah. So um, the so I already told you sort of what we think uh, suspension is and how we define it and how we mm -hmm. kind of try to um, study it. And the main point we sort of make in the research is that suspension is rare compared to the large amount of political backsliding. So that's sort of our okay. approach in, in the research. So. The argument essentially is, or the, the assumption is of much of the research, um, that IOs are devices to make credible commitments, and states join these IOs in order to tie their hands and commit to domestic political reforms. Okay. And that there are costs to entering the organization, and then potentially if states backtrack on their commitments, then there will be costs for uh, backtracking. So there might be punishment specifically in the form of suspension as one important tool. Okay, so like just to make it easier for our audience, backsliding. <laughs> okay, backsliding, yeah. yes. So backsliding, so backsliding is essentially any kind of uh, regression in your political standards. So you, you can term it uh, democracy in decline. Maybe that's like an easier term to okay. understand, right? Yeah. Uh, except that we actually like talking about this more in terms of not... Um, democratic backsliding but political backsliding okay. because we want to acknowledge that many countries don't necessarily start out from being a fully advanced democracy and yeah. then backtrack but start somewhere in the middle between full democracies and full autocracies and then go back and so um, in terms of political backsliding researchers looked at all kinds of different forms of this some look at human rights violations some look at coups some look at election irregularities um you know, state repression forms, state of emergencies. And so we essentially uh, call something uh, political backsliding if it has any of four dimensions. So human rights violations, democracy regressions on the scale, like apology scale, if yeah. you want to, uh, elections that are severely flawed or coups. Okay. That was a long answer to your question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And um, so who, according to your research, like who is suspended? Hmm. So from, from okay. Yeah. So from the so yeah. So the so the puzzle essentially was well, there's so many countries that uh, politically backslide every year, but there's only so few that get suspended, and why yeah. is that the case, right? Yeah. And so essentially, um, 
what we argue is that there's two sets of factors that influences. The first is country leverage. Mm -hmm. So if you are a poorer, weaker country, you are going to be more heavily uh, suspended. You're going to have a higher uh, probability of being suspended than if you're a powerful country that can leverage uh, either um, a powerful ally in the region or has strong economic weight yeah. or has natural resources that other member states might be interested in and don't want to risk getting once they vote uh, to kick you out of the organization, yeah. right? Uh, so one factor is country leverage. And then the other factor um, that we find is institutional rules. So in two ways. One is IO size, so this the membership size of the international organization, and one is voting rules. Okay. And this is fairly intuitive, I think. So like in any group, when you try to make a decision, right, if there's a majority vote, that's going to be much easier to make the decision than yeah. it's like a unanimous vote where everybody has to agree. And so organizations vary widely in the types of voting rules, and those organizations that have simpler, lower voting thresholds uh, suspension is much more likely than in high voting thresholds, like the EU has a supermajority vote that's just hard to, you know, get past. And then in terms of IO size, we find that actually it is the sort of moderate-sized organizations that are most likely to suspend, and we think it's because in the really, really large organizations, like universal membership organizations like UN agencies, mm -hmm. etc., it's difficult to kind of mobilize everybody and bring everybody together, right? It's just a lot of different um, actors that have to be talked to. And in these really small organizations that are maybe just three or four, like, you know, more member states, uh, kicking out one of the IO members, if it's only three or four, you yeah. might actually get to two IO members, and then it's just a bilateral relationship anymore. It's mm -hmm. not really an international government no. organization, and yeah. so it sort of risks not like an existential crisis, but you know it gets sort of to the to the brink of the IO. And so that's why we think there is more suspensions in these moderately sized organizations. Yeah, it, like while you spoke about backsliding and suspension, I couldn't help but think about you know uh, Russia and the G8 and then the case of Zimbabwe. You know Zimbabwe has had Mugabe for a long time mm -hmm. until a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, the question and the debate always came up that why is the state still a member state of the African Union, irrespective of the gross human rights violations going on? And then the case of Russia being kicked out, irrespective of the fact that we know it's a quite powerful country. How would your research explain that? So in the case of Russia, so the yeah. G7 or G8 would actually be an informal international organization okay. on which my co-author, Professor Felicity Weppers from Pepperdine, actually has a separate research project together okay. with Duncan Snydel at Oxford. So I'll um, pass that question on to her if she ever comes to the VZB or Duncan comes. I think okay. it would be a fabulous question for you. Okay. Um, and then the question about Zimbabwe, you said, and yeah. why Zimbabwe was not kicked out. Yeah. Okay. So actually, the the that story is a little bit more complex in that Zimbabwe actually was threatened to be suspended by the organization after egregious election. And then Mugabe made the decision to preemptively withdraw before mm. the suspension vote could be happening. Yeah. So there's some essentially face-saving mechanisms okay. that a country can do when it knows the meeting is coming up, when it knows the majority of membership is behind the decision to suspend the country. Yeah. To sort of backtrack by its own and say, you know, we don't even want to be part of this organization. We withdraw voluntarily because we don't think this is worth our time. So yes and no, like yes, they weren't suspended, but that's yeah. because um, they actually withdrew before the vote was happening. Okay, interesting. So uh, what should we be looking forward to? Because this sounds like a really huge uh, 
a project? <laughs> well, <laughs> what should we expect? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think this is the part of research, right? Okay. You research and yeah. go back and forth and try to sort of, you have some theoretical predictions of what we think of what's going on and you test these and see how, how well they apply. In the yeah. case of withdrawal, like some of the recent uh, explanations for the few recent cases don't seem to hold for some of these older cases. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, this is, this is an interesting project. I think many other uh, people have recently started looking into uh, IO membership dynamics and, you know, definitely state exit in different forms of that so i think this will be like an emergent field um where many different scholars can weigh in over the next few years yeah okay good and we like to you know end it with a lighter note here at uh, orders beyond borders and <laughs> so what i'd like to ask um if you were to go out to have you know dinner at a really beautiful restaurant what would you order and if you were to have an early uh, to have dinner with an early theorist, who would that be? Ooh, what would I order? <laughs> I mean, if you're describing like a really beautiful airstrong, it's almost more about the view <laughs> than about the food, right? Um, I guess whatever is fresh that day, okay, yeah, you know, would be my reply. Okay, <laughs> uh, the the early political theorist. Um, so that question I actually knew yeah. <laughs> would come in advance. So um, I think Socrates would be very Ooh, nice okay. to have dinner with, uh, okay. probably because. The Socratic method essentially says, you know, why do we believe what we believe? Mm -hmm. Are these really true things? Are these assumptions? Are these just arguments? And sort of keep pushing about, like, what does it take if you would have to change your mind? Yeah. Right? What's the other empirical things that we'd have to know to actually change your mind? I think these these questions can be quite painful <laughs> in conversations. Like, but why? But why do you think that? But why? Isn't that really true? So questions can handle um, it. <laughs> <laughs> right? But so I think, like, I think especially in an age of today where there's so many different information sources of yeah. some some of those are legit and some of those are not and we sort of have this confirmation bias where we just take in more of the information that already aligns with our preferences and attitudes anyways and discard others i think those questions are always sort of worth posing like what does it take to change your mind kind of critically ask about this so yeah even though i think it would be a painful conversation to have at dinner <laughs> it would be really nice to be taught by the master okay. in that sort of field okay if wishes were horses <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Linda. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on Orders Beyond Borders. If you have enjoyed this, check out our blog at ordersbeyondborders.blog.vitcp.eu or follow us on Twitter using the handle at obblog as well as on Facebook. You will find these links and more information in the description to this episode. Also, would like to hear what you think. If you have any comments or feedback on the series, write to us. You can reach us via email at obb.vitcb.eu as well as through our social media channels. This interview was produced by me, Linda Irulo, and Cedric Hawk. The team also includes Mitja Sinknesh, Yelena Tupach, and Idem Ebetuk. That's it for today. Until next time.